0: Last time we spoke about the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Though it was called a battle, what occurred at the Bismarck Sea was more of a catastrophic slaughter and a showcase of how the Japanese were no longer capable of performing offensives. The Allies performed skip-bombing and masthead bombing techniques against a convoy heading for Ley to deadly effect. Four destroyers, eight transports, twenty fighters were all destroyed, and nearly three thousand Japanese were killed. The Allied pilots were ordered to give no mercy to the enemy, and many reluctantly attacked the survivors of the shipwrecked carnage. Their commanders justified the action, stating that the men would be landed and put right into the front lines in New Guinea, causing even more suffering. Yet as magnificent a victory as it was for the Allies, it certainly was not the only one at this time, for another major naval battle was occurring in the Solomons. This episode is the Battle of Blackett Street. Welcome back to the Pacific War podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall, and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel over YouTube, where I'm finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about. And just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account now, and it can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there you can find early access to all my content, live hangout episodes, some gaming, and of course, exclusive podcasts dedicated to subjects you want to hear more about. So check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Now, just before we jump back into the turbulent seas of the South Pacific, I want to talk a bit more about another theater of the Pacific War, one that goes far too often forgotten, that of China. It's been quite some time since we last were in China, Now, stating that the Second Sino-Japanese War is complicated is kind of an overstatement. To simplify it somewhat, know this, there were 22 major engagements between the NRA and the IGA during this war. One of these engagements is known as the Battle of West Hubei, which was one of the four major battles that took place in Hubei. Now in July of 1938, The Imperial Japanese Army Daiju Ichigun 11th Army was formed under the Japanese Central Chinese Area Army. The purpose of such a formation was to conquer and occupy the central provinces in China, specifically those between the Yangtze River and the Yellow River. The 11th Army had played a crucial role during the Battle of Wuhan and had seen quite a list of differing commanders. In December of 1942, Lieutenant General Isamu Yokoyama, took control of the 11th Army, and he sent his sights on various targets. But before he could unleash his forces, Yokoyama was dealing with major sabotage operations against his main base. And these sabotage operations were not being performed by the NRA, no, they were being performed by the CCP's new 4th Army. Now the CCP had limited actions against the Japanese during the Second Sino-Japanese War, Although the press, such as the New York Times, has parroted some CCP propaganda insisting that Mao and his forces were tying down 80% of the Japanese forces in China, this is not at all true. The CCP did not have the means to do this, nor did they even want to do this. Mao Zedong himself was not an all-powerful leader at the offset of the Pacific War. The USSR favored his colleague, Wang Ming, who is known as one of the 28 Bolsheviks, i.e. Moscow-educated leaders. Mao Zedong referred to these people as the Dogmatist faction. Mao Zedong also had to deal with the Empirist faction members, such as the former party leader, Zhou Enlai, and other CCP military commanders such as Peng Duhai and Chen Yi. In February of 1942, the CCP began the Rectification Movement, known as Zhengfeng. And on February the 1st, Mao Zedong made a speech in Yanan calling for a study of the CCP's history and suggesting, quote, the party not only needs democracy, but needs centralization even more. The roots of Zhengfeng indicate a Confucian philosophy emphasizing the importance of ethical education. The cultivation of the person depends on rectifying the mind. Confucius had instructed his followers as such. Mao Zedong organized the rectification meetings, expecting CCP members to indulge in self-criticism and confession. As you can imagine, there were nefarious reasons for this. Mao, alongside his close ally, Kang Shen, The CCP's ruthless head of intelligence took charge of the Central General Study Committee and began to get false confessions using psychological torture. Kang's methodology would define Mao Zedong's growing grip over the CCP and the future of it. Residents of Yan'an would recount, The valleys and caves outside the town held victims of psychological bullying, who produced screams and howls like wolves every night. Suicides occurred often. One victim, who survived swallowing glass, was immediately forced to write self-criticism. By 1943, the rectification campaign had become a system of mass arrest, torture, and execution. In essence, it was a purge, that carried on well into 1944 using false confessions from prisoners who were just trying to save their own lives. It is estimated 10,000 CCP members, many of which were former inhabitants of the KMT-held areas, were executed. Wang Ming, Mao's primary target at the time, was spared, but he alongside the 28 Bolsheviks were forever sidelined. But hell, better than being dead, I guess. Meanwhile, Zhou Enlai and the empirists, well, they swung firmly behind Mao, fearing for their lives, and rightfully so. The rectification movement was to be one of many themes played out by Mao Zedong. There was a cycle throughout his reign where intellectuals were invited to be open. Then the party turned against them, and they were destroyed by self-criticism, paraded as criminals, tortured until they revealed they were traitors, and then executed. As Mao Zedong put it himself in August of 1943, it is not good to correct too early or too late. Too early, the campaign cannot unfold properly. And too late, the damage, that being tortured victims, will be too profound. One of the 28 Bolsheviks, Wang Shiwei wei who worked as a journalist for the Liberation Daily, wrote an article titled Wild Lilies in 1942, which criticized Mao Zedong for womanizing and enjoying too many luxuries. He spoke about how Mao Zedong took an ambulance, sent as a gift by the Chinese New York laundry workers to the CCP to carry wounded troops and instead used it as a private transport for himself and his 23-year-old mistress, actress Jiang Qing. Mao Zedong would later marry her after leaving his third wife, He Zijian, who had five children with him. Well, Wang Shiwei was expelled from the CCP on Mao Zedong's orders in October of 1942, having been found guilty of treason, and he would be executed in 1947 on Mao Zedong's orders again. Yes, Mao Zedong shared a lot of common traits with Joseph Stalin, like holding grudges and never forgetting about them. Anyways, enough sidelining about Mao Zedong. Closer to the story at hand, Mao had unleashed a propaganda campaign promoting the false image of the CCP's war effort against the Japanese. The KMT actually captured documents with orders from Mao Zedong which explained his thoughts on the war. The Sino-Japanese War affords our party an excellent opportunity for expansion. Our fixed policy should be 70% expansion. 20% dealing with the Kuomintang, and 10% resisting Japan. Between 1937 to 1940, the CCP grew its 8th Area Army from 45,000 to 400,000 men. Meanwhile the 4th Army increased from 15,000 to 100,000. The CCP's lion's share of the war effort was aimed at the KMT, but they did perform considerable actions against Japan. The 4th Army was led by Commander Chen Yi, and he had an irregular force known as the 15th Brigade of the 5th Division, led by Commander Yi Xianyan. Their arms and ammunition were self-manufactured, and though they had enough of them, the quality suffered heavily. Their main base was in northern Jiangsu province, but they also operated in central Jiangsu, northern and southern Anhui, northern Jiangxi, and Zhuzhang provinces. They were all over the place specifically to thwart any efforts of the NRA from encircling and destroying them. They also clashed with the NRA much more than they ever did with the Japanese. Despite all of that, the 5th Division of Yi Xianyan's forces had fought tenaciously during the 1942 Battle of the Dwarf Mountain. The CCP forces defeated the forces of Wang Tingwei and captured Mianyang in the process. This success, however, drew the 11th Army in, who carried out attacks from the north to drive the CCP out. But the CCP troops dug in and they would not budge. Yokoyama sought to surprise the CCP menace by attacking their rear positions from Yuyang and Qingzhou. The idea was to grab the CCP’s attention, while his 58th division launched an attack against Menyang. In early February, the 40th and 13th Divisions began to raise their activity in Yuyang and Jingzhou to deceive the CCP into believing a major offensive was about to be made against Changsha, which had been the crux of the IGA for a very long time now. On February the 15th, the 40th crossed the Yangtze River and began to attack Zhuhujian, Jianli County, and Hubei. Meanwhile, the 13th Division advanced east, sneaking over the Yangtze River from Shaxi and marched through a gap between the CCP positions in Changnan. The Chinese defenders were taken by complete surprise, and it would be the 87th Army garrison who would be hit first. The defenders were taking heavy losses, and they had to pull back to Menyang. Soon, the 40th and 13th Divisions were closing in on Fengkou and Fuchang as the CCP resisted their advances, killing 354 and wounding 890 Japanese. The final phase of the operation saw the 58th Division begin a march south upon Menyang, enjoying aerial support in the form of the 44th Air Regiment. The CCP's fortified positions were obliterated, and the defenders were forced to disperse and escape before the encirclements could be made. Many would manage to avoid capture by disguising themselves as civilians, but this only prompted Yokoyama to enact intense search-and-pursuit actions, lasting well until late March. The CCP leader Wang Haishan, along with countless CCP troops, were captured by these means. What was the Battle of West Hubei resulted in a mixed victory for either side. Many in the Allied camp reported that the Chinese had achieved a major strategic victory. However, they paid a heavier price than the Japanese. It is estimated the Chinese had nearly 24,000 dead, and 18,000 wounded, while the Japanese had 25,000 casualties. Alongside this, historian Barbara Tuchman states, The Japanese withdrew without pursuit from what appeared to have been a training and foraging offensive to collect rice and river shipping. What historian Barbara Tuchman is actually getting at is that at this time, Japanese operations in some parts of China weren't actually offensives to simply defeat the Chinese. No, they were literally foraging for supplies. You see, the American efforts to hit Japanese shipping was taking a toll on all aspects of Japanese commerce, including, you know, simply food, going to the home islands. So Japan needed to remedy the situation by rebuilding lost shipping. But this is Japan, who has basically no means of obtaining much iron amongst other resources. So where are they going to get it? Well, they started just rampaging through China. Yes, they went through uh, factories, just about anything in towns. So, I mean, I've heard reports that they broke into apartment buildings to just steal piping. Really, you got to imagine... Uh, hundreds of thousands of Japanese army soldiers literally just foraging for metal and stuff. This did happen, and quite often, particularly in the Yangtze River area where they could quickly get onto ships through the river Rhine system and, you know, get back to Japan. So in the end, it could be perhaps better called a tactical draw between the two forces. Now, diving back into the South Pacific, Japan had just lost four destroyers, eight transports, and the lives of 3,000 or so men. These figures did not even count the numerous sailors and irreplaceable pilots lost. The Battle of the Bismarck Sea was strategically a pretty big defeat for Japan, second only to that of the Coral Sea, and it confirmed their inability to control the air in the region, and ensured the continued isolation of their forces in New Guinea. In many ways, New Guinea was facing the very same fate that had befallen Guadalcanal. The Japanese logistics simply could not stretch that far, and the Allies were strangling their enemy the same way siege warfare had been done since ancient times. Japanese commanders would never again send transports or capital ships into the waters off Papua. From this point on, the garrisons of New Guinea would only receive meager supplies brought via submarines or barges, completely inadequate to the task as we've seen countless times before. Thousands of Japanese troops manning the defenses at Ley and Salamawa would basically be left on their own to face a growing Allied advance. General Douglas MacArthur went on the record to say, The Battle of the Bismarck Sea was a decisive aerial engagement of the war and marked the end of the Japanese offensive in the Southwest Pacific. For those Japanese survivors who did manage to land on friendly territory after the slaughter, they were finished as combatants. Lieutenant Masamichi Kitamoto observed survivors coming ashore at Tel Aviv, on the west of New Britain, and he had this to say. Their eyes were glassy, and deeply sunk into their faces. All were jittery, as if they were seeing a horrible dream. A pitiful scene of a vanquished and defeated army. Despite the amazing victory, MacArthur's forces could not capitalize on the success and perform a major offensive against Ley. The major reason for this was General Douglas MacArthur lacked amphibious forces to support the Overland March through New Guinea. Since mid-1943, MacArthur's forces had been advancing up the northern coast of New Guinea, while an amphibious force was in the making. Rear Admiral Daniel Barbie took command of what would become the 7th Amphibious Force on January the 10th of 1943. Barbie had immediately hit it off with MacArthur in a similar fashion to how General Kenny had hit it off with him as well. As you can imagine, what I mean by that is he just started kissing his ass. However, Barbie had pretty much nothing to work with at the beginning. There were no amphibious training facilities, therefore one of his first actions was to establish some at Tubul Bay near the mouth of the Brisbane River and Point Stephens. Meanwhile, MacArthur requested small craft and transports. As, aside from his command, everyone else was receiving such equipment en masse. Obviously because Europe and the Central Pacific had been priorities. As Australian and American troops began to arrive to MacArthur's command, he began to demand they train to debark from larger ships, down cargo nets, onto smaller craft. But, Barbie did not have enough attack transports, known as APAs, which were key for these types of operations. The first landing ship tanks, known as LSTs, and landing craft tanks, known as LCTs, would not arrive until mid-January. Until he received these, he began training up the landing craft infantry, known as LCIs, by tossing nets over cliffs to replicate the debarkation from large ships. By March the 15th of 1943, Admiral King signed off, making the Southwest Pacific Force the 7th Fleet, under the command of Admiral Arthur Carpenter. This did not go over well with MacArthur, who believed, quote, Much like his predecessor, Vice Admiral Leary, Carpenter seemed to be working more for the Navy rather than MacArthur. All was not well in the court of Arthur's Camelot. By the way, I feel I throw too many punches at MacArthur, to be honest, and I I will say one thing for the guy. His paranoia about the United States Navy always being out to get him was pretty much true. He had soured his relationship with the Navy during the Philippines disaster, so much so that Admiral King was going out of his way to, and I have no way else to put it, just to fuck with the guy. It is true, if you read, uh, any modern books about the United States Navy during World War II, Admiral King kind of really went out of his way to make sure no resources got over to MacArthur for a very long time. And it really has a personal grudge kind of feeling to it. So I always recommend, if you have the time, to read any of these books that dwell deep into the, uh, personalities of the Pacific War, and what happened when they met and stuff, it's it's, it's pretty funny stuff. Anyways, PT boats of the MacArthur fleet would once in a while engage an enemy submarine, but they usually got away with ease. Bad weather, large coral reefs made it kind of a, well, a bit of a nightmare for smaller ships like PT boats, which were quite fragile, striking just a log could knock them out. But they were enough to scare the Japanese from using too many barges, and thus they were, in a way, a fleet in being, albeit a very small one. The PT boats would have something of a surface monopoly in the Solomon area for about six months, constantly looking for action but finding none. Admiral Carpenter encouraged their use in his command as they had shown their effectiveness during the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. Now, back over in Rabaul, Vice Admiral Junichi Kusaka remained in command of the naval forces at Rabaul, and he had the responsibility for the defenses of the Central Solomons. He knew he could not expect much help from the combined fleet, and definitely nothing from the army, so he set about strengthening the air defenses at Rabaul and rapidly tried to develop airfields at Munda and Villa Stanmore. Alongside this he performed a survey of Santa Isabel Island, just in case it could also provide an additional strip. With over 200 fighters and bombers under his thumb, he hoped to hold the Central Solomons with air power alone. But he would be horribly, horribly overwhelmed. Against his command, Admiral Fitch had some 316 aircraft of various types on Guadalcanal, and the Cactus Air Force could easily be reinforced by a pool of over 200 more aircraft from Espíritu Santo and New Caledonia. And here we have another decisive advantage coming to the Allies. Not the numbers, no, that of technology. New aircraft were coming to the Pacific, such as the famous Grumman F6F Hellcat and the Vought F4U Corsair, which were significantly more advanced than the Zero Fighter in terms of speed, armament, ceiling, and rate of climb. The key parameters for a good fighter the Hellcat was the next generation of carrier fighters, and the Corsair was a gull-winged fighter-bomber issued to the Marine fighters on Guadalcanal. Now, just for you tech geeks, the Hellcat was a very large aircraft for its type, weighing about 1,200 pounds unloaded, powered by a 2,000 horsepower Pratt and Whitney engine that could climb 3,500 feet per minute. It held a flying range of 1,000 miles, and it had a cockpit slickly fared into a fuselage and heavily armoured. It carried six electrically charged .50 caliber guns and twice the ammunition as its predecessor, the Wildcat. While the Wildcat lagged behind the Zero, the Hellcat outdid her in speed and dive. As Bill Davis said upon first encountering the Hellcat, The plane was a monster. From the moment I started the engine, I was thrilled and amazed. There was a thunderous backfire as flames shot out of the exhaust pipe. A sailor with a fire extinguisher moved towards the plane, but the engine quickly caught and the flames disappeared as the engine started to purr with a mighty roar. I could feel the power through the throttle as well as my ears and every quaking fiber of my body. In contrast, the Japanese continued to employ the same types of aircraft, knowing full well their weaknesses, and knowing full well the Americans were developing new models to counter them. And, uh, I just wanted to point this out because it wasn't too long ago that I had listened to this one podcast. If you're really into World War II aircraft, and all the technical fine points of their design and everything, and what made one aircraft better than the other, and how did one aircraft kind of, you know, turn the tides of the uh, war in a lot of senses, there was this amazing podcast done, and, um, well, love him or hate him, you know, please just take the politics out of it. But it involved Elon Musk, and he was talking with Dan Carlin. It's a fantastic podcast. It looks down to just even the fuel used by these aircraft and how the Americans had a octane level in their gas that just gave them an advantage over all of their enemies. It's really, it's a fascinating podcast. I can't recommend it enough. And I think if you go over to uh, Dan Carlin's hardcore history or one of the um, the sub ones you'll see on Spotify. Just look for the interview he did with uh, Elon Musk. It's all about World War II aircrafts and all sorts of other things. I think they even talk about Genghis Khan at one point. It was an interesting podcast. I recommend it. And again, the only reason I bring it up is because they specifically uh, talk about why the Hellcat really changed the course of the war, and, you know, kind of the um, the specifics about the Zero Fighter that basically led to its doom later on. The only advantage the Japanese still enjoyed was their airstrips laid out all over the South Pacific, like the base at Munda, which was particularly important as it allowed for bombers from Rabaul or Bougainville to stop and refuel for striking missions. Munda's airfield was attacked countless times by naval and aerial bombardment, but her repair crews just filled up her holes just as fast as they were made. Yes, the Japanese construction crews actually filled up the craters with crushed coral in a matter of minutes or hours, and the strips were made operational quite fast. As Admiral Ainsworth put it, The fact is inescapable that the Japs have gone right ahead and built two airfields in spite of constant bombing by aircraft and two bombardments by surface vessels. We may destroy large quantities of gasoline and stores, and we may render these fields unusable at critical times, but the only real answer is to take the fields away from them. Regardless of the lack of success neutralizing the airstrips for good, Admiral Halsey had his eye on Munda from the offset of finding out that the Japanese had begun constructing an airfield upon it. Halsey saw it as a very valuable new site offering terrain suitable for a large bomber field. In order to invade, it simply needed to be pounded into dust. And if aerial bombardment was not enough to do the job, he was willing to navally bombard it to hell if he must. The Japanese had become emboldened by the increasing failures of the Allies to hit their airfields at Munda and Villasthanmore, and allowed for cargo and troop ships to make runs between them and Robal quite frequently. Thus far, only piecemeal attacks had been made against either outpost. But Halsey was planning to send a larger force with considerably larger firepower this time. On February the 27th, Halsey appointed Rear Admiral Aaron Merrill's Task Force 68 to smash Munda and Villa Stanmore. Task Force 68 consisted of three light cruisers, Multiplier, Cleveland, and Denver, and seven destroyers, Waller, Connie, Conway, Fletcher, Radford, Nicholas, and O'Bannon. Merrill divided his force into two groups. The first group of four destroyers led by Captain Robert Briscoe would hit Munda, while the rest would be led by Merrill himself and they would hit Villa Stanmore. On March the 4th, Merrill departed Espiritu Santo and headed for the new allied base at the Russell Islands. Merrill intended to use the same tactics employed during the last two bombardment attempts back in January. Navigation was to be by SG Radar gunfire to be continuous after the first ranging salvos were fired and he would use all ships in a column formation to fire simultaneously to limit the time period they had to stay in the enemy waters by the afternoon of march the 5th merrill's force had left the russells en route to their departure point just seven miles north of dyson island during the night the four destroyers detached to go hit munda while merrill's group continued on course towards the kula gulf believing that they would manage to do so undetected. However, that night the IGN destroyers Murasame and Miniguma were bringing supplies from their base at Villa to Columbangera. These two ships were part of the 2nd Fleet's destroyer squadron number no. 4 under the command of Captain Masio Tachibana. They had taken their route through the Vela Gulf and the Blackett Strait and were going to return to the Shortland Islands via the shorter route through the Kule Gulf. However, the Japanese destroyers were discovered by American aerial reconnaissance prompting Admiral Merrill to engage them. The Americans estimated the Japanese destroyers were going to reach Blackett Strait at about 1130, while Merrill's schedule called for him to make a course change to enter the Kulé Gulf by 1217. The distance from the mouth of the Kulé Gulf to the eastern entrance of Blackett Strait was around 20 miles, thus it seemed to Merrill to be a senseless change to his plans. With the speed they were capable of going, he simply did not think that he could catch them in time. Thus, he opted to simply carry out his original bombardment plan, before the Munda Group hit and raised the alarm for the nearby Japanese vessels in the strait. But after Captain Tachibana delivered his supplies, he had chosen to take the shorter route back through the Kule Gulf, which would fatefully shove him right in front of Merrill's position. Just after midnight, Merrill's three light cruisers were swinging into the Kule Gulf while the destroyers detached to perform an advanced sweep of the gulf. Meanwhile, the two Japanese destroyers were coming in from the opposite direction along the east coast of Kolimbangara, when at 12.53 the radar aboard Multiplier detected them northeast of Sansamboki Island. The ships all began to converge on the contact as they tracked the enemy, training their guns on the enemy. Now, radar-controlled gunnery was still new to the United States Navy, and thus the first barrage tended to target the nearest and same target. This was actually a tactical deficiency that had given the IGN an advantage on multiple occasions. At a minute after 1 a.m., the multiplier broke the silence of the night and opened fire with her main batteries, followed by the Cleveland and Denver. The cruiser's 6-inch guns were firing at a range of 11,000 yards, just battering her. Their fire was concentrated upon the Murasame, and their radar-controlled gunnery successfully straddled the destroyer. In just five minutes, a salvo hit, causing a large explosion on the Murasame, with large fires erupting across her deck. While this was all going on, the Waller launched a volley of five torpedoes and scored a hit on the Murasame causing a tremendous explosion, breaking her in two as she quickly sank. Apparently the explosion from that torpedo hit was heard by Briscoe's force over 25 miles away at Munda. Merrill then directed fire upon the Minigumo as it tried to keep a northerly course while returning fire. After charging north for 4 miles under intense fire, the Minigumo came to a stop suffering from heavy damage. The American destroyers tried to get into position to fire torpedoes, but by the time that they did, the Minigumo was already sinking. Merrill's cruisers likewise had begun firing star shells over the Blackett Strait, and the illumination indicated that there were no more enemy vessels. After this, Merrill's force began their bombardment of Villa Stanmore at 125, targeting supply dumps, runways, bivacs, and various aircraft that they could see upon the ground. Using aid from their aerial reconnaissance, they were able to score many hits on emplacements such as shelter tents, barracks, ammunition dumps, grounded planes, and such. It was a very successful bombardment, causing a lot of damage, and they knocked out the shore batteries that tried to respond. By 140, Merrill ordered a withdrawal through the northern Georgia Sound. 174 IGN personnel had been killed, of which 128 were aboard the Mutasame. There was also two submarines, the USS Greyback and Grampus, that had been assigned to support Merrill's force, and the Grampus would never return from her voyage. It is possible during the battle, one of the IGN destroyers sunk her, but her wreckage has yet to be found to this very day. At the same time the battle was occurring, Captain Robert Briscoe's group proceeded unmolested to their bombardment point. At 1.04, they began to hear and see the firing flashes from the battle, and alongside this, unidentified aircraft were coming over Rendova Island, prompting their caution. Nonetheless, by 1.39, they began their bombardment, striking the center of the landing strip. By 150, the bombardment ceased and they made their withdrawal. Although the airstrips were repaired quite easily, the loss of two destroyers in a fast fashion was a bad omen for the Japanese. During March of 1943, Allied bombers would make sporadic attacks on Japanese airfields over Balali, Kahili, Shortland Island, and Munda. Alongside this, Allied photo reconnaissance got a good picture of Japanese movements between all of their bases. And this soon revealed a new seaplane base was being built off southern Bougainville, prompting a Dawn Fighter attack on the 28th. Led by Captain Lanfear of the 70th Fighter Squadron, six P-38s destroyed eight Japanese seaplanes there. Every month brought the Japanese more and more losses, whether it be shipping, men, or materials, and they simply could not afford this. While the American production capabilities were just growing even bigger, I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about. Also just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com thepacificwarchannel the Pacific War Channel. Over there you can find early access to all my content, live hangouts, me playing some games, and of course exclusive podcasts directed at subjects you want to hear more about. So if this is of interest to you, please check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The Japanese had mixed success in central China, and a rather small but terrible loss in the Solomons. They simply could not afford any more of these losses, for each one of them was drawing them ever closer to losing the pacific war.